Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for your word. And as we come now to open your word, we come to hear from you. So speak, O oh Lord, to we who desperately need you. We ask that you would empower the preaching of your word for the sake of the advancement of the gospel in our hearts and through our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word if you have it. If not, the scripture for this morning will be on the screen. I'll be preaching from the English Standard Version, if that helps you on your phone app. We will be turning to Isaiah 59 this morning. Now, growing up... um, our church, uh, Southern Baptist Church, we, we celebrated Advent, but, you know, for years, uh, I, I just thought Advent was whenever they got the wreaths out, you know, and they just put them up, and they got the points, a bunch of red and green all over the place, and they put the Christmas tree in front of the American flag that we obviously had to have in the corner of the sanctuary. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was all about decorations, and then there would then as I grew a little bit older, I was like, well, there are some traditions that come along with Advent, and just just to kind of pull the room, raise your hand if either growing up or now you you have an Advent tradition, you do something for Advent, whether it's a calendar. Oh, one hand, whoop whoop. We are so Baptist. <laughs> oh, how the Anglicans look down upon us. Yeah, so, so, you know, I just thought it was just merely tradition for the sake of tradition. But Advent is actually a time where the Christmas season is actually, especially in America, really fast and really busy and really chaotic and really hectic. And then when you look at the birth of Jesus, the real reason that we even have, uh, that we really celebrate around Christmas time, it's very ordinary. It's, it's, it's very... Um, desperate, you know, whenever you consider the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. It's, it's very different from, from all of the other things that we have uh, around Christmas time. And so Advent is an opportunity for us to slow down, to prepare him room in our hearts, to look with joy at the first coming of Jesus, and then look with hope and anticipation for his second coming. And so, you know, here at Trace, one of the ways that we're going to recognize and celebrate and kind of focus our attention on Jesus this year during Advent is to consider one primary theme, the theme of hope. Now, we all know what it's like to have our hopes fulfilled, and we all know what it's like to have our hopes crushed and maybe you walked in this morning and you're just full of hope you know maybe maybe this building is is giving you a little bit of hope this morning and and you feel that um maybe still there are some others of you who walked in this morning and or maybe maybe it wasn't really even walking in maybe you just limped in because you're going through a dark night and you don't remember the last time you felt hopeful You see, hope consists of two main parts. First, there's something that we're hoping for, and then there's something that we're hoping in. And what we do is we attach ourselves to a person, to an object, to an idea, or to a circumstance, and we're trusting it, we're needing it to provide for what we're hoping for. Okay, now, 
Hopelessness then happens when the object of your hope doesn't deliver the content of your hope. When the object of your hope doesn't come through, it doesn't provide for that which you're hoping. In Kentucky, it works like this. We play football, you know, um, and we haven't beaten Tennessee in 40 years in Knoxville. And every single year, we're hoping to go to Knoxville and come away with a victory, and it never, ever, ever happens. And we can be hopeful every single year, but time and time again, whenever the object of our hope, Kentucky football, proves to us that they cannot deliver a win in Knoxville, what do we become? Hopeless, right? Kind of like LSU fans whenever they face Alabama. Am I right? Some dude in the back back there might have a little experience with that. <laughs> we have a heckler there, Jason. I'm not going to talk about State or Ole Miss fans. You guys served a lot this week, and I'm just going to leave you all alone. <laughs> but you know how it works. We, we hope for financial stability, but our jobs don't always deliver. We hope for friendships, but how often do we feel alone or rejected by those we look to for care and comfort? We hope for success. It's good to hope for success. But sometimes our abilities, they just fail us. And beneath all of those hopes, all of those not, not superficial, but maybe surface level hopes, there is a deeper kind of hope. You know, we hope for friendship because we really hope for belonging. We have this desire to belong. We hope for financial stability but even at the bottom of that, other than just needing, you know, shelter and clothing and food, we, we need security. We hope for success because deep down, we need approval. We are each, whether we like it or not, hardwired for hope. You are hardwired. You were created to hope for something. But all of the things that you're hoping for, there's something deeper because even when you attain it, you're hoping for success and you get it. You're hoping for financial stability and you get it. You have the best friends you could possibly have. For, there's just always something nagging you. There's something off. It never delivers the way you think it will deliver. You know, you see that with Tom Brady and Michael Jordan. They're some of the unhappiest superstars ever and they are the greatest basketball and football players respectively they, they're the greatest and whenever you listen to them in interviews and whenever you read books about them they're they're unhappy even with all of their success it's just they, they reach the top and it's just oh this is it this is it it's because we have a deeper hope don't we all hope for righteousness i'm not talking about if you're a christian in this room don't, just don't all of us don't we hope for righteousness? Don't we hope for justice and peace and love and goodness and truth and beauty and joy? We hope for all of these things. We, we desire hope that doesn't fail us. We desire hope that lasts. But in order for our hope to be true, 
in order for our hope to last, we have to hope in an object. We have to hope in something that can deliver every single time on all of those things that we're hoping for. I want to turn your attention to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 is a poetic drama. It's, it's like an epic. It tells a captivating story. I know some of you were telling me you were reading it this week, and you're like, man, that's the most depressing passage I've ever read in my life. Maybe you didn't read the whole thing, because you're, you're absolutely right. What a great Christmas sermon this is. It is a drama that unfolds and it presents itself in three distinct acts. It's the story of a people who have a deep problem that they cannot solve. And it's the story of a God who intervenes, who intercedes on their behalf to give them what they cannot find on their own. But before we jump into Isaiah 59, we need to look back at Isaiah 58. There's only one verse in Isaiah 58 that we're going to look at, but it's an important one. You see, the people of God who were once exiled are now back, and the people of God are actually doing faithful things, okay? The people of God are going through religious exercises. They are... Uh, adhering to the sacrificial system. The people are fasting. The people are praying. They're doing all of the things that God has commanded them to do in the law. And yet, something is just off. Something's wrong. You see, Jerusalem is not what it once was. The people have been in exile. The people, Jerusalem itself, has been destroyed. This, they once were a world power. They no longer are a world power. They once had all of this stability. They no longer have all of this stability. Everything is chaotic. Everything is in turmoil. Their lives just aren't that good, and they're hoping for something more. And they're doing all the faithful stuff. So why is their life still messed up? Why why isn't the world better? They're doing what they're... God, you've asked us to fast and to pray. We're doing that. Why is the world the way it is, and why are we not experiencing more happiness and more joy and more stability and more security what gives and Isaiah 58 verse 3 the people make a bold accusation you see they've they've been following the rules they feel hopeless they feel discarded they feel abandoned and they no longer expect good just like a Kentucky football fan going down to Knoxville you don't expect it because you've lost hope The people now do not expect good from God because they've been doing the religious stuff and he hasn't been coming through. And maybe you have had some of these thoughts. I'm doing what you're asking of me. Why aren't you coming through? Here's what the people said. Look at Isaiah 58 verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Do you see what what they're saying? We have been faithful 
our life is not going well, maybe you're not faithful. We've been doing what we're supposed to do. Maybe you're not doing what you're supposed to do. <laughs> it's, it's so ironic what they say they've been doing. They fasted, which means they've been praying. <laughs> and this next little line, like how ironic. Why have we humbled ourselves as they accuse their creator? What good is it for us to humble ourselves if you're not going to give us the desires of our heart? They're hopeless. Let me turn your attention to your notes. Whenever you walked in, you should have received a couple things. You should have received a page of notes. You should have received a booklet that will be useful to you uh, later on throughout the week. I want to summarize Isaiah 59 before I read it. Because it breaks down into three dramatic acts. Because of our sin, we have a problem we cannot overcome apart from the saving grace of God in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. There are three parts. First, because of our sin, we have a problem. And we're going to unpack that problem. The second part is, it's a problem that we cannot overcome. And everyone in this room is going to be faced this morning with this moment. There's going to be this objective reality that we all have a problem. But this second part is so crucial. Are you going to admit it? Are you going to come to terms with your hopelessness? And then this third part that we cannot come overcome apart from the saving grace of God and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you, if you don't have your Bible open already, Isaiah 59. I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to break down the three sections. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See how he kind of turns it on them? You're accusing me? I don't have the problem. You are the problem. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Okay, just a slight pause there. So the first, the first verse, we have God kind of answering the accusation of the people. It's like, you're accusing me of not being able to help you? 
It's your sin that has separated you from me. And then he's like, let me tell you about that sin a little bit. And he unpacks that in those next six verses. And now nine, verse nine, notice the change. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. The Lord has finished accusing them, and now the people are responding with confession. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. The people have recognized just how hopeless they are, and they just confess it back to him. We, we want the light, we can't see. Not only are we blind, we don't even have eyes to see. We are a miserable people. And then we come before you, and our own sins testify against us in your court. And we can't answer them back, because we know they're right. We are sinners, and we are guilty before you. We have no hope. We want salvation, but it's so far from us. We could never attain it. We could never reach it. This is a broken, hopeless people. And then look at this shift. Verse 14. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And so you have this like little summary here. This is, this is kind of the way the world is. There is no justice. There is no truth. It's the way it is in the world. It's the way it is with God's own people. Even though he has set his eyes on them, even though he has set his favor on them, they're still characterized by these things. Sin still persists. And what do we have here? The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Now, we're going to talk about it in just a second, but at this moment, there are a couple things that could follow that we've seen. God could either say, I'm displeased with what I see, and so I'm going to destroy this people. He has every right to do that, because they have transgressed him. They have sinned against him. They are guilty. They are the problem. And he could wipe them out. But look what we see in verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. The Lord's saying, no one can solve this problem. There is no man who can intercede for these people and make this right. No one can do it. What it says next. Then his own arm brought him salvation 
and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. There are three acts to this drama, and I want us to look at them one by one. The first act in Isaiah 59 is rebellion. Rebellion. The root of hopelessness is cosmic rebellion against God. Now, I I don't want you to hear me say that if you are hopeless or if you are depressed or if you are in a season of darkness, that it's the direct result of a sin that you have committed. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is humanity as a whole has sinned against God. And because sin is in the world, we are hopeless. Ultimately, Even when our hopes are fulfilled, we, we, it's just never enough, like we've said. And the root of this hopelessness is cosmic rebellion against God. We have a problem that is basically a two-part problem. The first problem is our sin. Do you see what he says in verse 1? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from God forensically, so we, we cannot, we, it's just a, a judicial fact that because of our sin, we cannot be with God because of his holiness that we're going to look at in a second. But also, even in your prayer life, even in your devotional life, Even though we have been reconciled to God, do you see this this part? He's speaking to his own people, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. If you feel very far from God and you are living in habitual sin, just open your eyes and look at the problem. The problem is not that God cannot hear you. You are the problem. I am the problem. The problem lies in us. The reason that God is separated from us is not because there's something deficient about God. It's not because he doesn't want to be close to us. It's because our sins separate us. And we see it in a few ways. Sin does three things in this this little passage. First, sin dominates us from the inside out. Do you see the domination of sin in this passage as he's describing what sin looks like in all of these poetic terms? For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters into suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief. And then this image here, they hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. 
He who eats their eggs dies, and from the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Sin dominates us from head to toe and from the heart out. It dominates every single area of our lives. We are literally slaves to sin. We cannot escape it. We cannot overcome it. And here's the scariest part about a passage like this. Because in the confession and some of these things, you're like, man, those are some really serious sins. And I don't know that I've ever committed a sin like that. I don't think I'm as bad as these people were. Since we know the source of sin is our hearts, we know a scary truth about ourselves. That the seed for every kind of sin is already within us. You see, Jesus kind of talks about that with the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, you know, the law says, you have said you shouldn't murder. And I say if you're angry with someone, if you're sinfully angry with someone, you've committed murder in your heart. Because all sin originates in the heart, and the seed for every single possible sin under the sun is within us. You know, we look at the world, and we lament how bad it is, but in all reality... We should probably be grateful that it's not worse. We should probably be grateful that we're not worse. I'm talking apart from from the saving grace of Jesus, not even talking about that, just as a person created in God's image, not a Christian. We should be grateful that the world is not worse. It's it's the doctrine of common grace. And some have said that, that hell, all hell is, is the removal of God's common grace that he bestows on all of creation. Sin dominates us from the inside out. It overwhelms us, it overtakes us, and that's why even on our best days, our best days, our best moral days, our most successful days, the days that we've had really good, you know, relationship with our wives, with our friends, we can have one moment of weakness at the end of the day that can totally ruin it. You may be beating sin at every single moment and then at the end you lose. It dominates us. We can't escape it. It doesn't just dominate us, though. It distorts our view of life. Look at verse 8. The Lord says, The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, No one who treads on them knows peace. We, the way of life that we make for ourselves, apart from God's ways, it's it's crooked. Sin distorts our view of life. As we think about making decisions, we have sin in our hearts that distorts what the ideal should be. What should we be striving for as people? What makes you a good dad? You know? What makes you a good husband or wife or, or boss or employee or just citizen? What, what are the things that you are striving for? What's the ideal that you're looking to? And because you have sin in your heart, you might think you know the answer to that. And you might think you have a biblical answer and you might have a biblical answer. But if you have sin in your heart, sin always distorts the way of life that you try to lead. It always distorts it. But sin doesn't just dominate, it doesn't just distort in the end. Sin destroys us. This language 
It's language of death. We are a people who are completely dominated by sin from head to toe, from the inside out. We are a people who are distorted by sin so that when God says go this way, we go that way. But sin in the end, it'll kill you. Why? Because of the second part of the problem. The people are hopeless and they are accusing God of not listening to them. They're accusing God of being too weak to save them. And God looks back at them and says, I'm not the problem, you're the problem. You have sin in your heart. But why is sin ultimately a problem? You know? Like, like obviously, we want to be moral people, but let's say that you kind of put sin to bed to bay a little bit and, and you're, you're being kind of a moral person why is sin so ultimately damning you know is it just because we can't you know improve ourselves enough to overcome it now the reason that sin is ultimately damning the reason that sin is such a deep problem for us is because our sin keeps us from ever being in the presence of God for whom we were created, which means you have no prospect of ever being hopeful. Hope is something that you can never achieve because of your sin, because deep down you're hoping for God and your sin keeps you from him. Why? Because God is holy. You see, our problem is not that God is incapable, inadequate, or indifferent. Our problem with our sin isn't just that we are immoral. Our problem is that we sin and God is holy. If God wasn't holy, it wouldn't be a big deal. That's why our sin separates us from him, because he is holy. And as as the kids would tell you all their time in TC Kids, we say it all the time, because of their sin, they can't come in. We talk about Adam and Eve. The picture, do you guys remember the story? Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Why are they kicked out of the Garden of Eden? They were in the Garden of Eden with God, enjoying his fellowship, enjoying his presence. What happened? They sinned. Was the sin really that bad? That the whole world is sinning to ruin? Was the sin really that bad? No, God is that holy. That was the problem. Not the kind of sin they committed, not even the fact that they sinned. The problem is that God is holy and they sinned. That's your problem today. You have no prospect for hope because God is holy and you are a sinner. We are objectively, not subjectively, like we can talk it out and be like, no, 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 you shouldn't be hopeless. Here are some reasons. We are objectively hopeless. Because God is holy and we are not. Act one, rebellion. But then the passage shifts and we have act two, repentance. And this is, this is an interesting thought I want you to think about for a second. That if you actually are feeling hopeless, that you're, you're feeling despair, you're in a dark night, whether you're a believer or not, you're actually in an interesting place. Because hopelessness has the potential to lead us to confession, 
and repentance. When you finally recognize just how bad the problem is, that you have a problem you cannot overcome, you're faced with a choice. Will you, in bitterness, run from God, or will you, in confession and repentance, run to God? You see, the people, they accuse God falsely. God accuses them rightly, and then they're faced with it. They're faced with God's holiness and their sin, and they see it. Oh, we're more hopeless than we thought. And then they confess their sins. Confession is the recognition and admission that we have a problem we cannot fix. Do you know that's why every single service we have, we have a call to confession? We do it differently. Sometimes a prayer of confession is prayed over you. Sometimes we recite a prayer of confession corporately. It's to get you in the habit of seeing you have a problem you cannot fix. You, believers in this room, my brothers and sisters, we have a problem we cannot fix. Not the world, okay? That's not what we're here to do to invite as many people who don't know Jesus into this room so we can tell them just how bad their situation is and how we have it right. We're in the same boat. We're hopeless too. Do you know that apart from Jesus, you are hopeless? Apart from Jesus, you are hopeless. And that's why you might think, why do I need to keep confessing my sin? Is it like I lost my salvation? And I have to confess so he'll save me again? No, it's to keep you in a position where you're saying, I am totally hopeless apart from God. He is my only hope. And so I want you to see what they're confessing here. And I want to encourage you, as you confess sins privately and corporately and publicly, these are the things we need to be confessing. So first, they confess their moral failures. Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. They're like, we're not righteous. We're, we're pretty immoral. We're breaking the law. We're not just. We're not doing the right thing. That's one thing that, that I tell Jude every single morning. We, we get together and we talk and we, we read a passage, but it's the same exhortation every day. Today, with whatever you do, the right thing. Do what's right. Be righteous. That's, that's the call from God, and the people are like, yeah, but we're not. We're not. Maybe you need to confess that this morning. The second thing they do is they confess their spiritual blindness. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. The people of Israel throughout their history, they had seen God's grace. God had rescued them time and time and time again. He had given them the law, but do you see the frustration? There's just something not there. We're still dominated by sin. This isn't the answer. We need something more. We need a deeper salvation. We need a bigger salvation. We need to be changed from the inside out. We're totally blind. We want to hope. We hope for the light, and we look, there's nothing but darkness. And the the visual here. We grope for the wall like the blind, but not just anyone who's blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. 
There's no prospect for sight. They confess their spiritual blindness. They desire God, but they cannot see him. And then they confess their guilt. Oh, I'm sorry, they confess their frustration. You see verse 11? This is, this is an interesting passage that I didn't really understand at first, but the more I thought about it, the more it made sense in my own journey. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. The frustration of sin, you know? You have, you have one besetting sin that you're, that you're striving to overcome, and time and time again, it wins. You just groan in frustration over it's victory over you. And you hate it. You hate your sin. You hate that you continue to fall back into this pit and you're groping around and there is no way out. There is no hope. And so you just groan within yourself, which is essentially what confession is. It's an inner groaning for help. And then they confess their guilt and they confess their rebellion. This is one we don't like to confess. Do you see what they say? It's almost uncomfortable to even say it. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. A holy God, we're multiplying our transgressions and our sins before you. And our sins testify against us. We can't get out of it. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. We've turned back. We've turned back from following you. We have rebelled against you. We're walking the other way. So a couple things about confession here that's so important. And this is how, if you're in a season of darkness, of hopelessness, how if you press into that, you're actually really close to the grace and hope of God. Confession is a cry for help that calls from the abyss of darkness and despair. It's a cry for help. When you recognize how hopeless you are in your sin, you will cry for help. You've been running from God and you cannot find fulfillment in anything else and you turn and you run and you cry to him. This is what the people are doing. This is confession. And then secondly, confession frees us to stop pretending that we're something we're not. You know, you don't have to do that here. You don't have to pretend you're something you're not. Because the Lord is very clear here. You're all guilty before me. You are all separated from me because of your sin. Sin is dominating you. It is distorting you and it is destroying you. And we all can look around this room and say, we all have the same problem. We're messed up. We're messed up from the inside out. Even on our best days, we cannot go without sinning. We cannot go a day without sinning. Even as God's people, even though we are justified before him, we cannot go without sinning. So we can come together and confess our failures to one another and cry out to God for the help that only he can provide. So confession of sin is the way that we are real with God and with ourselves. We've been accused by God of all of the sin and we can look back to him through confession and say, you're right. You're not the problem. 
I'm the problem. When we come to terms with our condition and press into our hopelessness, we are in a position to receive saving grace. You can't receive God's grace if you don't think you need it. But the moment you see how messed up you really are, and the moment you cry to him, is the moment he will pour out his grace and his mercy on you. Hopelessness helps you stop running from God in rebellion and start running to God in repentance. But here's the scary thing. Confession and repentance by themselves do not mean that God has to save you. You might think that it's automatic, right? Okay, you win. I'm a sinner. I messed up. Now help me. He doesn't have to help you. He doesn't have to save one sinner. He is God and he is holy and he is faithful. We are the ones who have sinned. We are the ones who have been unfaithful to him. And we deserve his wrath. Do you see in this passage what he cares about over and over and over again? Justice and righteousness and truth. He has every right to pour out his wrath on you and me. Even if we're confessing our sin and asking him for help, he doesn't have to help us. He is not obligated to do that. He could completely leave us in our sin. He could leave us in the darkness, groping around. But here's the most beautiful truth about Christmas, the most beautiful truth about the Bible, the most beautiful truth about your life is that every single person who comes to a moment of confession and repentance of sin does receive saving grace because of act three in this passage, redemption. Look at verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth is stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. You have this moment like it's building. Do you feel it building? The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Hopelessness is overcome only by divine intervention. We can have true hope, true hope that lasts, that delivers every single time because God himself is strong and able to bring salvation. Redemption, rescue, salvation from sin has to come from God if it's gonna come at all. He looked around. There was no man. Not one. Not the best among us could intercede on the behalf of the people to fix their problem because we have a problem that we cannot overcome on our own and no one can help us no other person can step in and help us with this problem and so if God's gonna say or if we're going to be saved it has to be by God God himself has to come down and redeem us we are dominated by sin do you remember we are enslaved to sin 
And redemption is the purchasing of someone, paying off a debt to bring them back. Only God, only God can do that. In bringing salvation, we see three things. In bringing salvation, God will not give up his righteousness or justice, which is, which is so interesting, you know? Because according to this passage, we are objectively guilty before God. And you know how it works, like, I don't know if, I watch a lot of crime drama, and so, like, whenever the investigators are trying to pull a confession out of someone, they're doing it for a couple reasons. They're doing it, uh, first of all, to make their case really easy. You know, he confessed, boom, we're, we're done, we're going, um, we're convicting. But also, because they don't really know the whole story, you know? That's not how it works with God. He knows the whole story. He doesn't need you to confess because he doesn't know all of your sins. And he doesn't need you to confess to make his case against you rock solid. He cares about justice and righteousness. And you are not just and you are not righteous. So how can a God who cares about justice forgive people who are objectively guilty? But look at the passage. Look at verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. You see, it's actually really encouraging news. God doesn't stop being God by saving us. If God is no longer just, if he somehow has to impugn his own justice in order to save us, then he's no longer God, and his salvation means nothing. But God fully upholds his justice and his righteousness in saving us. Okay, the second thing he does. In bringing salvation, God will not hesitate to shower sinners with his grace. And this is the good news this morning. No matter what your past is, no matter what you've done, you're not going to surprise God with a really bad sin. Okay, do you see this passage? He knows how bad you are. He knows how deep the problem is in your heart. He knows. But there isn't a sin you can commit that can stop God from pouring out his grace on you, pouring out his mercy on you, and bringing you back to himself. He will reconcile you. He will bridge the gap. He will not hesitate to show you his love and to shower you with his grace. And it's because of the third thing we see here. In bringing salvation, God will send a redeemer. This is the promise of true and lasting hope. Verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion. A salvation that the people of Israel could only dream of is one day coming. One day, a redeemer is going to come to free you from the shackles of your own sin. And he is coming to set all things right. You're hoping for a better world. You're hoping for light. He will be the light that shines in the darkness. You see, because of God's holiness, we deserve his wrath. He will repay according to our deeds. We deserve his wrath. But because of God's mercy in Christ, we receive redemption. 
Because Jesus, the Redeemer, both God and man, entered our broken world to redeem it, to restore it. He became like us. And he died on a cross, not because he was guilty of sin, but because we are guilty of sin. And he bore the wrath of God in our place. Jesus was punished for us. It's the only way we could be rescued. It's the only way that God's justice could be upheld and at the same time, he could justify sinners. Because the justice and grace of God meet in the cross of Christ. I wanna turn to Romans chapter three. I wanna invite you to turn to Romans chapter three. Because this, this passage really sums up what this redeemer will come to do. Romans chapter three, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. True and lasting hope is only attainable if God chooses to intercede, if God himself chooses to intervene. We know his arm is strong enough to save. The question is, is he willing? And the answer is yes. He is willing and he is able to save you from your sin, to redeem you, to buy you back, to set you free. So I wanna encourage you this morning. Do you see the condition of your own heart? If not, read Isaiah 59, one through eight again. This is who you objectively are because of sin. And the second, what are you gonna do with that? Are you gonna turn away from God in bitterness? Or are you gonna run to him in confession and repentance and confess your desperate need for him? Because if you do, we see what he promised to do and what he ultimately did in Jesus. He will redeem you. He will restore you. He will rescue you. Only God can solve this deep problem you have, and he does. I want us to do something before we transition to the table. I want us to turn to Psalm 42. And we're not gonna read the entire Psalm, but I want us to read one verse and I want us to read it together. And I, I pray that, that this verse will be true of us. Because even though we're singing songs of joy around Christmas, many times we're not full of hope. 
Psalm 42, verse 5. All right, I'm going to read it. If you have an ESV, you can read it louder. If you do not have an ESV, just read it a little quieter so we're not all confused. All right, but are you ready? I want us to read this together. All right, this will be good for our souls. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We celebrate hope as believers through the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a grace that has been given to us by God as a way for us to remember what Jesus did on our behalf. It's a way for us to proclaim to one another and to the world that Jesus is our only hope because only because his body was broken on the cross, which is why we take and eat the bread, and only because his blood was shed on the cross, which is why we take the cup and we drink, can we have any prospect for hope. And so I'm gonna pray for us, and here's how we're gonna do it this morning since it's a little bit different. Um, we are going to come down and get the elements, all right, and go back to our seats, but maybe, maybe we could kind of come to the middle row and get it and maybe exit that way. You guys are adults. You can figure it out. But whenever we go back, the way we, we take the Lord's Supper, you do not have to be a member of Trace Crossing to observe the Lord's Supper with us, but you do have to be uh, a member of, of the church, uh, the Big C Church, so you have to be a Christian. And so we would encourage, if you're not a Christian, to, uh, to just sit with us and, and join a prayer with a family. Another thing we do is once we gather the elements, you get together with friends and family, and you huddle up, and you pray together, and then you take communion. But I'm going to pray a prayer over us, and then I'm going to invite you to come and take the elements back to your seat. Father, thank you for your grace this morning. Thank you that you are a God who rescues guilty sinners. Our condition is so bad. We have a problem we cannot solve. We're more hopeless than we realize. And so I pray that every single person in this room would recognize just how bad that problem is. That sin is more than just a bad deed that we commit. Sin is a power that consumes us, that dominates us from head to toe and from the inside out. It's eating our hearts away. We become less and less human the further we drift from you because we were created to hope in you. Because only you can fulfill that hope. Father, we will never confess our sins unless you empower us to do so. We would rather pretend that everything's okay. Help us to not only see that everything's not okay, but it's okay 
to admit that and good and right to admit that. Empower our confession this morning. From the depths of our hearts, may we confess to you just how much we need you. May we feel our need for you more than ever. Especially as we hold this bread and hold this cup. Father, you looked on our helpless state and you could have left us in it, but you chose to pursue us. You chose to redeem us. You looked out in the world and you said there was no man who could intercede, no one who could save. We hope for salvation, but we know how far it is from us. You brought it near to us because you came near. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God coming to us to rescue us from ourselves and our sin. So thank you that even in Isaiah's day, the people saw a redeemer is going to come. He's coming. He's coming to bring you salvation, the salvation that you hope for and the salvation that you long for. He is coming. Hope in him. Because he is an object who will never fail to deliver on the content of your hope. He will set all things right. Father, that's our hope as your people this morning. We hope for that day. We long for that day when Jesus returns in glory to set all things right. Father, fill us with hope this, this Christmas season. And as we hold this bread and we hold this cup, we look back on what you did through Jesus and we are so grateful. And we look forward with great anticipation to the day he returns. Fill us with the joy of our salvation this morning. And I pray that you would empower us that right now, as we live in this in-between time, that we would be faithful witnesses to the good news that the Redeemer has come. Father, I pray that you would empower this faith family to live for your glory in this city, in this new place. I pray that we would continuously proclaim the truth of the gospel. And I pray that we would be light in a dark place because we were in the darkness and we received your light. Help us now as we move forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, I wanna invite you now to come forward, receive the elements, go back to your seat and pray together.